All right, well, if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 23. Joshua, chapter 23. You can find that on page 197 in the Red Pew Bible. So, Joshua, chapter 23. I want to start this morning with a question. Uh, If you were telling someone the Christmas story for the first time, where would you start? It's a question that's kind of lodged itself in my mind this year. Uh, this is, uh, so if you don't know, uh, we have two kids. Uh, we have a five-month-old, Rebecca, and we also have a two-year-old named Titus. Uh, this is Titus's uh, third Christmas, um, and it has been particularly fun because he's not just passively participating, but he's actually at taking part in things. So um, this has been a lot of fun, getting the house decorated, putting the tree up, Putting lights on the house has been a lot more fun this year because Titus has actually been able to get involved with it. Uh, he helped me spread the lights out on the house. Uh, he wasn't on the roof, obviously, but he, he was running around underneath me uh, telling me all sorts of things. Uh, he tried his hand at hanging ornaments. We're still working on trying to get him to hang things on more than one branch. Um, but our, our Christmas tree has never looked prettier. Uh, and we even worked on a gingerbread house together. He's had a blast, and so have we. Now, as we've, as we've gone about carrying over some of our old traditions and introducing what I hope will be some new ones, it's really, I've really been struck with how important it is as, for me as a parent to be intentional to explain to Titus the significance of what's actually happening. It, he's enjoying all the activities, but he, I also want to make sure that he understands there's a significance behind all this. Christmas is a time that has rich with opportunities to talk to others, especially our family, about Jesus and the good news of his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his second coming. I mean, that is what Christmas is all about. Though, if we're honest, it's very easy to make this season about what we're doing to celebrate rather than why we're actually celebrating. I think that's probably been on my mind more this year than in other years because that's where we're at as a family. It's really weighed on me that we're laying a foundation here. And the last thing I want to do is to hand down a bunch of traditions to my kids without conveying to them the substance of what Christmas is all about. Now, if you, if you read the devotional I sent out uh, this week in the prayer email, then you know that the Christmas story begins long before the actual event of Jesus' birth. That's, that's certainly the crowning moment of Christmas. But that was a moment that was anticipated and longed for all the way back in the book of Genesis. Saints from ancient times have been yearning for this promised offspring who would set his people free from the curse of sin and death. And so, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary with news about what was about to happen, he addressed her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And explained to her that God had chosen her to bear a son who was that promised Messiah, who would fulfill God's redemptive promise, which he had spoken of all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Despite the fact that Jesus' birth was the fulfillment of the hope of mankind, when the time came for him to be born, we know that he was not received in the manner he deserved, he was, he, that he deserved. But he was sought. And that's the focus of this message this morning. Now, we're told by Luke that when the moment of Jesus' birth arrived, 
that a host of angels singing praises to God sent a group of shepherds who sought him eagerly because of what they had heard. They ran to the town looking for this promised child. Later, then, according to Matthew, Jesus was sought by wise men who came from the east to worship him. With the arrival of the promised Christ, things changed. Light broke into the darkness of a sinful world in a way that it was unlike it had done and, and like anything that had happened before. What we're looking at this morning in Joshua 23 is a passage that doesn't necessarily fall into that category of your traditional Christmas passage. And that's because we're wrapping up um, what we've been working through for the past two years, going through the book of Joshua. Now, we have three weeks, including today, left in the year, and I plan to use those three weeks finishing up this series in the book of Joshua. Afterwards, just to give you a, a little lay of the land, we're going to be going into the book of Acts starting in the new year. Now, while this isn't your traditional Christmas text, it's not irrelevant to the Christmas season. Actually, I think there's a powerful lesson for us to take with us from this chapter into the Christmas season. And it's a lesson that we learned from the shepherds and the wise men who came seeking the newborn king. Here, in the last section of the book of Joshua, the focus is on how God's people ought to live in response to the fulfillment of God's promises. So with the fulfillment of God's promises, how do God's people, how are God's people called to live? Well, last week we learned about the importance of the purity of our worship. We learned important lesson, an important lesson for how we ought to bear with one another as a church. And this week, I want to highlight another important lesson from Joshua 23 that has to do with pursuing God in the midst of his good promises. And that's the lesson that I want you to take with you uh, today, that we are to seek after this gracious God. So let's begin first this morning by reading our text together. If you would, one more time, stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and its heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain 
that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord God, your God has given you. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and your souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. That is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, the main idea of this passage, which aims to answer how God's people are to live with him in the fulfillment of his promises, is that we are all called to be striving after him. The main idea here is simply that we are to live our lives in response to the fulfillment of God's promises by striving after him, our gracious God. To put it a little more succinctly or more directly, it's simply this, seek after this gracious God. Now when we talk about living in a right way, so that we remain in the fulfilled promises of God in hope of what he is still bringing to pass. We're talking about living in response to a sovereign God who is working all things together for his glory, for the good of those who trust in him. Now there's a careful tightrope to walk here though, because I don't want to in any way to give you the impression that these are things that we must do in order to earn God's favor or to earn salvation or grace from him. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that we receive the promise of eternal life, that we are counted by God as righteous, not because of anything that we can do or have done or should do, but only because of what Christ has accomplished for us. The Bible preaches a gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone according to the purposes of a sovereign God who works in us by his power through his Holy Spirit to change our hearts so that we do respond to him in faith. And while the Bible makes it abundantly clear that we are saved by grace through faith and that our salvation is not of ourselves but that it is the gift of God so that no one may boast it also makes it abundantly clear that we are saved to live in a certain way as a result of that work in us. And that's what makes Joshua chapter 23 so helpful for us as we live in the fulfillment of God's salvation promises through Christ. That's also what makes this passage so relevant, I think, for the Christmas season because that's what we celebrate at this time of year, the birth of Jesus Christ in whom the Bible says, are the yes and amen of all of God's promises. Joshua 23 is actually a recorded sermon, so I feel like I'm preaching a sermon from a sermon. Uh, it's, it's Joshua's sermon, which he preached to the people of Israel through their leaders to equip them and to encourage them to go on living in the land of God's covenant promise as God's covenant people. Everything that God had said 
had come to pass. The people of Israel were enjoying the benefits of those promises and the faithfulness of God. And as the leader of Israel, we see that Joshua wanted to ensure to the best of his ability that the people and their children and the generations that were to come went on continuing to live in the good land as God's covenant people. And so that we, that's why Joshua calls the people together here in this, in this chapter. And that's actually, we see why our author recorded this, because this is a message to all generations of God's people. As we look at this passage, um, I see six key commands here, which are presented to us in three couplets. And that, which is what Joshua gives to the people about how they are to strive or how they are to seek after this gracious Lord of all the earth. So these are six commands which we are, intend, which we are intended to take for ourselves as we ourselves live in the fulfillment of God's promises. And so that's going to be our three points. We're going to look at each one of these couplets. So if you have the sermon notes, you'll see uh, that the first one of these commands is simply to keep and to do God's commands. Keep and do God's commands. Second, we go on living in God's promises by clinging to and loving the Lord himself. We're called to cling to and love the Lord himself. And finally, we see that we are called to trust and to fear this gracious God. Trust and fear this gracious God. Well, first off, we want to look at what it looks like of, of this first command to keep and to do God's commands. Uh, it's hard to say exactly when this second assembly happened in relation to everything that we looked at last week when the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh returned to their homes across the Jordan River. Our author simply transitions from the almost war that we had in Joshua 22 to this new meeting by saying, a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, that Joshua summoned all of Israel, its elders, its heads, its judges, and its officers to himself, and then he spoke these words to them. Now, as a modern reader, it bothers me a little bit not to have a really clear timeline as to when all of this took place. It's one more demonstration that the Bible is not written to fit what you want it to be. It is written for its own purposes, according to God's purposes. Um, after all, uh, when we look at this, we see God, God told Joshua all the way back in chapter 13 that he was old and advanced in years. So when we have this, um, this introduction to say that after a long time had passed, that Joshua himself has finally decided that God is right, he is old and advanced in years, and he has called the people together. And we see that, uh, and the reason I want to draw your attention to that simply is um, that th this shows us that the, this is a feature of the structure of Joshua, which, is which shows us that Joshua is not intended just to give us a timeline of events. It's actually intended to give us a lesson here. So what, what exactly is this intended to teach us? Well, to see that, we have to get into the heart of Joshua's sermon. Why did he call this assembly in the first place? He's got a purpose here, and it's clear to see that Joshua called this sort of, it's almost like a staff meeting uh, with the leaders, elders, the judges of Israel, because we see he wants them and he wants future generations of Israel to go on living in the land of Canaan, the land of God's promise, enjoying the benefits of God's covenant with them. Joshua is at the end of his life. 
And as a wise and good leader, he's not just concerned about what has gone on during his lifetime. He's also concerned about what's going to happen once he's gone. He wants to see the future generations of God's people flourish. He doesn't want to see the faithfulness of the genera- this generation flag and fail. Rather, he wants to see it carried on, passed down to their children children and to their children and so on so that the world would see and know the glory of the living God who brought Israel out of Egypt put them in a good land and then dwelled with them and they with him and we can tell that this is Joshua's concern by the way that he speaks in this sermon on behalf of past generations to this present generation of Israel about future generations that were to come Look what he says, starting in the second part of verse 2. He says, I am old and well advanced in years. That means Joshua was one of two men who lived through Israel's rescue in Egypt and actually saw God make Israel inherit this land of promise. Now he's speaking to those who come after him. Verse 3. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. Now, this is important because Joshua is not talking to people who have just heard about what God has done or have just heard about God's promises. They had actually experienced them come to pass. They were witnesses to God's word and to God's power because it was in their, done in their lifetimes. They had, he had seen that through. These men in this generation of Israel had been especially equipped to give account to their children and their grandchildren and maybe even their great-grandchildren about how God had dried up the Jordan River on command even though it was flooded. These are the people who smelled the dust that settled over Jericho as the walls came tumbling down. These are the men who saw enemy armies driven before them and who had enforced God's commands. They had experienced what Abraham's children had longed for for nearly 600 years. They were witnesses to God's power. They were witnesses to the faithfulness of his word. And now, because of that, Joshua is calling them to live in a certain way in response to all that God had done for them. You get a sense here that this is a moment not unlike when Jesus sent his disciples out and the apostles and all who had witnessed his resurrection. What did Jesus call them? Well, in Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The duty of a witness is to tell others about what they have seen and experienced. So just like the apostles and the first disciples of Jesus, everything that these leaders in Israel had seen was a testament to them about God's power, about the faithfulness of his word, And they had a duty as a witness to these things, especially since they were men of authority, to lead by example, to live with a right response to the fulfillment of those covenant promises as God's covenant people. Now, towards the end of his sermon, Joshua makes it clear that Israel's future is on the line here. And that's why he's called these men together, to exhort them and then the nation through them to live in pursuit of the God who had brought them to this place, to seek after this God of grace and to live rightly before him as his holy people. Now, 
the substance of this message is to look at these instructions and to take them in for ourselves. But before we actually get into those instructions, I just want to point out to you that everything that Joshua says that Israel should do in this pursuit of God is to be done in response to God's gracious actions towards them. And notice how in the second part of verse 3 and then into verse 5, Joshua there, he's recounting God's work. He's reminding them that they, have, uh, that they have what they have, not because they have achieved this for themselves, but because God has done it for them, that he is with them. God is the warrior who went before them and put these nations and armies to flight. God is the one who strategically gave each portion of the land to each tribe through Joshua. And in verse 4, Joshua looks to the future and says, Behold, I have allotted to you uh, as an inheritance for your tribes these nations that still remain, along with the nations that I have already cut off, from the Jordan to the great, city in the west, or the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised. So, past present, and future, Joshua is calling these witnesses to credit God rightly for the wonders that they have witnessed, for the fruits of the land that they now enjoy, and for the future expansion of Israel which is to come. All these things, every one of them, are the benefits given to Israel by a gracious, holy, mighty God, the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, who chose them for himself to be his covenant people. There is grace all over this passage, which is important because it drives home the fact that, the pract- that this, all this practical instruction that we're set to receive is a manual for how to live in response to a gracious and good God. I want you to see that because a lot of times when people think about the Old Testament, they don't think about God as gracious I think of him as some sort of cruel taskmaster. That's not at all what we have going on in Joshua 23. We have a, a call to pursue a gracious God, a God who had given Israel everything and fulfilled every one of his promises in spite of their unfaithfulness. God's love is not something that we receive and then go about our business unaffected. It has an impact on us, and it changes the way we live and think and prioritize. And this is a function of his grace. And we pick up on that reality in verse 6 where Joshua says, Therefore, so because of everything that these men had witnessed and all that future generations are going to witness about God concerning his faithfulness and his power, Joshua says, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the law, in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Now, let's, let's notice the pattern here. Notice the pattern that's going on. Israel has seen God's power. It has seen his faithfulness to do everything that he says he will do. Not one word has fallen to the ground void. Not one. Therefore, so because of that, Joshua says to do two things. He says, be very strong. First, to keep. And second, to do all that God has commanded in the book of the law. So what we've got going on here is a call to action that is based on the gracious work of God, past, present, and future on their behalf. 
The reason that pattern is important is because it demonstrates to us that Israel's obedience, and by extension our obedience, is intended to be a response to a gracious God. Obedience is not the way that we earn God's favor, but it is the, rather the right way to respond to the favor he has already shown us according to his grace. The reason I bring that up is because it is so easy for the human mind and the human heart to treat obedience to God as a means to earn God's favor. Whereas even here in the Old Testament, in Joshua chapter 23, we are seeing that obedience is the right response to the grace of God which has been received in spite of our weakness, in spite of our sin, and in spite of all the ways that we have fallen short. The purpose of the law was to show Israel the path of life. God had commanded his people, be holy as I am holy. What does that look like? Well, that's what the law does. The law shows us what holy living looks like. More than that, We understand in the gospel that the law provides the occasion for forgiveness and redemption since we understand in the good news that Jesus uh, has come, that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets through his perfect obedience and that he has secured our salvation from the demands of the law by suffering for sins in the place of his people. So when Joshua issues this command to be strong, He's extending the command, actually, that was given to him when God called him into service. And now he's extending that to these men who are going to lead Israel. And he calls them to walk in light of God's word. He calls them to live in obedience to God and to trust in the faithfulness of his word and the power of his might. It's vital that we see this pattern in Joshua 23 because I think that we can, we can tend to fall into either one of two ditches as we walk on the path that God has called us to. We can fall into the ditch of legalism where we look at God's commands as a way to earn God's favor or it, we fear God because we think, if I don't do these things, then I will lose his love. The other ditch that we can fall in is, is, is into the ditch of, of license where we live without regard for God's instructions or for what he has told us to do in our lives, presuming on God's grace, twisting knowledge of that grace as an opportunity for sin. We stop fearing God. We live the way that we want because we say, well, God has to forgive us. He says in his word. Those are two devastating ditches that we can fall into. And Joshua chapter 23 helps us to navigate that risk. Joshua urges these leaders the way that he does because he knows that unless Israel conducts itself by the rule of the word of God, they would never thrive in this land, but rather perish in it, just like the nations that they had replaced. God's word is the path of life. You can't ignore it and live. The gracious power of God must drive us forward in eager obedience to him. If it doesn't, we show that we are not God's friends, but rather that we are his enemies. After all, Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, that if we love him, we will do what he commands. The work of this gracious God must lead us to live by his word. And this is the heart of this first command that Joshua gives these elders and these leaders to keep and to do all that was written for them in the law. So what does it mean to keep and to do the law? Well, doing the law is pretty straightforward. It means putting God's word into practice through the way that we live. 
The word keep, on the other hand, has a depth of meaning that actually I think can get lost in the translation. Uh, to keep something is to guard it. This, is, this command at, from Joshua actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When God made man in his own image and put him in the garden, we're told to keep it. That was one of Adam's roles. It was given to him by God. His job was to protect God's creation. That was part of his role. This is similar to the command that God gave to Joshua. And now we see Joshua is extending that same task and purpose to these witnesses of God's power. Keep the word. Guard it. Why? Because it is the word that keeps and guards us. When we trade man's logic and man's precepts for God's wisdom and God's commands, we are, tra- we are trading the way that Adam and Eve behaved in the garden for the way that Christ has called us to walk. The command to keep takes us, actually, it doesn't just take us back to the Garden of Eden, it actually takes us forward to Jesus, who was called the second Adam, because he accomplished what Adam, our forefather, did not. This little word is significant not only because it has a rich history in Eden, but also because it looks forward to the kingdom of Christ. There's a few places we could go to look at that here, Um, but in Revelation chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, we see that Jesus tells the church in Philadelphia, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may seize your crown. So the the call and command to keep God's word, we see, carries over from the Garden of Eden to the Law of Moses, and now even into the New Covenant that we have in Christ. Uh, Consider John 15, verses 10 and 11, where Jesus says, As a father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be made in you and that your joy, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. So keeping God's word is part of what identifies God's people. And we see that it's a natural response to the power of a gracious God who works in our lives. Some people think about God's word as a bunch of harsh rules and commands, a list of things that I have to do or have to not do. They point at commands and the regulations that that govern Israel over what they could eat or drink or wear and so on, and all they see is a list of arbitrary rules. Some people look at the commands of the New Testament in a similar way, as if God is just out there to ruin our fun. Joshua understood that the only way that we can thrive is to live according to what God has commanded in his word. And we see that accordingly, God's commands are not burdensome because they are life and light. And when we see that keeping and doing God's commands are not the way that we earn his favor or the way we earn his grace, but rather we see that they are the right response to his gracious work, then we begin to see and understand what it means to pursue a gracious God. You can't pursue a gracious God by running the opposite direction from him. You can't pursue a gracious God if you're unwilling to keep and to do what he has said in his word. So we see that this is a key command for us to take into our own relationship with God. The second command that we have here is to cling to and to love the Lord himself. The heart of obedience is the heart of love. 
In verse 7, we see that, the, that um, part of the purpose of the law was to distinguish God's people from the world around them. Joshua says that the result of keeping and doing the law will be that it will keep them from mixing with the nations that were remaining around them. Now, last week we talked about the fact that worship is a matter of life and death. Here, we see that Joshua's concern with Israel not to mix with the nations around them was so that they did not get caught up in mix, or mixed up in worshiping false gods. He says not to get mixed up with these other nations or with these other gods. Instead, verse 8, he says, But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day, one man of you puts to flight a thousand, <clears throat> since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Now, notice these two crucial commands here. Cling to the Lord your God and love the Lord your God. We cling to what we love. There's nothing that communicates Titus's love quite like having him run from the other side of the house when I come in the door, jumping in my arms and clinging to me like some sort of octopus that's escaped from SeaWorld. I mean, he grabs you, and you know that it's a pure love. And you know that because of the way he clings. God is not interested in, the for in forms of worship that are not matched with a heart of worship. He alone is worthy of our highest love, and so Joshua's command here is to love and to cling to God accordingly. Jesus tells us that this is the greatest command of the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. To love God with the whole of who you are. When Joshua told these leaders to keep and to do the law, he was urging them not just to obey a bunch of commands, but to respond to the love that God had shown them with a right love of their own, a love that surpassed their love for any other thing, a love that made them flee from every lesser thing to love God with everything that they were, which is what he's getting at when he tells them to cling to God. Joshua knew that even though Israel had seen all that God had done for them, even though they had seen uh, the end of the wicked Canaanites, he knew that sin still had its allure. The fertility cults of the Baals and the Asherahs with their abominable practices, which included sexual immorality and even in some cases child sacrifice, were still attractive to the Israelites, even though they knew the living God, even though they had seen how God deals with sin. Joshua warns the people that even though they had been faithful up to this point, the lion of temptation was still out there, prowling around them, waiting for its opportunity, waiting to destroy them. And so he warns them. He says, if you turn back and you cling to these nations that are among you still and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will, not, will, will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. That is a painful image, isn't it? I mean, you think about a trap, you can think a lot about a lot of things. A bear trap has teeth. It'll cut your hand off. Whips on your side are painful. Thorns in your eyes? 
This, this is the picture of pain. Are these nations and their influences really all that bad? Well, yes, they are. And Joshua wants the people to understand that blurring the lines of holiness and sin is a deadly thing to do. God had called Israel out from the nations to be his holy people. Joshua warns them if, if they turned from God's grace and they clung to these other nations rather than to God, then it would bring pain and suffering and they would eventually perish from off the good land that God had given them. And unfortunately, we know that Israel in its history did just that. The stories of Israel's exile are painful, but they were the fulfillment of Joshua's warning. But before we wag our heads at these foolish Israelites, let us stop and think about all the things that lure us from pursuing God with a whole heart. The idols and the temptations that led the Israelites astray, they, those things may have changed their shape, but they are still there. The danger that Joshua warns Israel of here is the same danger that Paul warned the church, uh, the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 when he said, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, which is another name for Baal? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make a dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. There is a call for Christians to cling to God and to love God with their whole heart. And there's also a call to be distinct, to be holy as God is holy, to flee all unclean things. And there's a lot of debate in Christian circles about what it actually means to be in the world and not of, but not of the world. I think it's clearer in some cases what that looks like than in others, what, what is acceptable and what is not. We need the discernment of the Spirit in that as we live our lives because we are called to be a light in dark places. And that doesn't mean we just separate ourselves and go be monks somewhere. It means we have to be active in the world around us. But we also have to preserve that distinction. We have to trust in the Spirit as He applies God's Word to us. And I think what we really need is the remedy that Joshua prescribes. How do you keep yourselves from idols? How do you pursue holiness? How do you pursue a holy and gracious God? Well, it starts by loving God with a whole heart and clinging to him, the way Joshua speaks of here. If we are the temple of the living God, then that is our first and foremost priority. And time and time, time, and time again, I think you will find the rule of love, the rule of loving God with your whole self proves to give you faithful discernment in every situation. Now the third set of commands that we have here is to trust and to fear this gracious God. And I want you to catch that because it's trusting and it's fearing a gracious and good God. There's something different about, the God, about God 
and the gods of the Canaanites that Joshua is warning Israel not to follow after. It's a difference that these men knew. It's a difference that you know. What is that difference? The difference is that God is real. These other gods were false. The appeal of a false god is that you can deal with that god on your own terms. With the Lord, you must submit yourself to him on his terms. Now, Dale Davis, the um, well-known commentator, mentions that Joshua never would have passed a modern preaching class with this sermon because he ends talking about the certainty of God's judgment. He doesn't even give a gospel call here. He says, I'm about to die. Everything that God has spoken of has come to pass. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised you have been fulfilled, so, that the, so also the Lord will bring on you all the evil things until he's destroyed you from off this good land if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God. So Joshua ends his sermon with a severe warning. And he may not have followed my college professor's three-point uh, three sermon outline. He may not have ended with an altar call, but he makes his point here. It's a point of warning. He wants these leaders of Israel. He's not trying to scare them. He's trying to ensure that they walk in the right way and that they lead the people who they have been entrusted with in a right way. He wants them to know that God is not to be trifled with. He keeps his promises. He keeps his promise to bless and he keeps his promise to curse. He blesses his people. He does everything he says he will do. But also we see that he is a covenant enforcer. So you do not get to enjoy the benefits of a covenant that you do not keep. And so Joshua wants to make sure that Israel keeps the covenant here. We have, we have read about how God blessed Israel in his covenant of love. This, the land that he brought them to was the gift of his gracious favor towards them. But Joshua also makes it very clear that the Lord is to be feared. You can trust that just as God will keep his word of blessing, so he will also enforce his judgment on wickedness. Joshua's appeal to these leaders and to the people is to love God and to walk with him because he knew that in the day that they abandoned God and became like the nations around them, they would also be driven out of the land. So it stands for us to understand that fearing God is part of pursuing him. Fearing God is part of pursuing him. To, to, to fear God is to think of him with the respect and with the awe that he is due. It is to respond to him and to his word with obedience. As we've seen, we're called to keep and to do his commands. It is to recognize that though God is not safe, he is good. And it is to treat him accordingly in the way that he deserves to be treated. Now, the Renaissance writer Machiavelli wrote in his well-known political work, The Prince, that it is better to be feared than to be loved if you cannot be both. What he meant by that is that he felt it was better for a ruler to be respected by his servants or his subjects than it was to be loved. Every earthly king and ruler falls short in that area and they turn into tyrants. Not every earthly king or ruler turns into a tyrant, but there's always the risk for that. There is no such duality in the kingdom of God. God is gracious and good. He does not change. He is merciful and he is just. He upholds righteousness by the power of his might and he judges wickedness with perfect 
fury. God is to be both loved and feared, respected and trusted. He is worthy of our worship and our praise. He is worthy of our affection. He is worthy of our pursuit. As Joshua wrapped up this sermon to these leaders, he did so with a warning based on everything that they had seen, not to forget that God keeps his promises to bless those who seek after him and enforces justice on those who do not. This chapter ends by uh, really bringing to our light the severity of God. But it also, uh, it, it doesn't exclude the kindness of God. Instead, it shows both of them to us, showing them that they're not opposed to each other, but rather they are functions of the glory of God's perfect holiness. So in our own pursuit of God, we learn to love true beauty and excellence as we see it in Him. We learn to satisfy the deep longings of our heart in Him. And we learn then to hate anything that would get in the way of that. Anything that would get in the way of His glory. And we've looked at three sets of commands this morning from the book of Joshua, which instruct us on in how to live in response to the fulfillment of God's promises. We've learned that we're called to keep and to do His word. We've learned that we're called to love and to cling to Him. And finally, we've, we've learned that we are to trust Him and to fear Him. As we'll see next week, the reality is that this is something we cannot do on our own. It takes a work of grace, a work that only God can do, and a work that God has done. When we think about the Christmas season, what we're celebrating is we're celebrating the work of God to bring grace to us, to make us inherit not just a land and a place, but to receive righteousness in Christ, to receive eternal life. And as we celebrate that, I hope that we'll call to mind these three sets of commands that will help us walk in pursuit of this great God who loves us. Let's pray. Lord God, we stand in awe of you. And it is so good to see that you never change. But your grace and your goodness stands forever. Father, as we read about your perfect justice, sometimes our hearts can recoil from it. But that's because we have a fallen notion of what true justice is. Father, when we think about Christmas and we think about the coming of Jesus, it's all too often the cross is the furthest thing from our mind. What about a cross and the manger of the newborn king? have to do with each other? Well, they have everything to do with each other. And as we see, as we celebrate how you have given us your son, you gave him so that we might, we who have sinned might uh, no longer be lost in our sin, but be saved through faith in him. Help us to remember the cross. Help us to remember that you are a gracious and good God. And as we do, Father, give us hearts that long to know you, to pursue you, and to exalt you as you ought to be exalted. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.